Okay, so I'm just gonna pretend I'm opening a channel to you. Hello again, everyone, and welcome back to Strange New Worlds, a science and Star Trek podcast. My name is Mike Wong, and today I'm very excited to be bringing you a conversation that I had with Elise Cutts. Now, as many of you will remember, I spent the past six years of my life living in Pasadena, California, earning my PhD in planetary science. And while I was in grad school, I started this podcast as an outreach tool. And my co-host from the very beginning up until when I left Pasadena was Elise Cutts. When we recorded our very last episode together in person in Pasadena, I promised Elise that she could have a special guest star role on Strange New Worlds, very similar to her favorite John Delancey, aka Q. And so I'm very pleased that Elise was able to join me over subspace communications to recap and review the Short Treks episode, Calypso. But before we get to that, there's been a lot of space news recently. So, let's do a round of news. First, two personal items. Recently, I was on Dr. Jim Davenport's Astro Vlog. Jim is an astronomer at the University of Washington, and when I discovered that he does an astro vlog and loves Star Trek, I just had to be on his vlog. Jim and I sat down over coffee one day and recorded about an hour's worth of conversation that he miraculously cut down into a wonderful 10-minute YouTube video, where we talk about mostly science and Star Trek. For instance, Jim asked me how I first got into Star Trek, and he also asked me what my three favorite instances of science in Star Trek are. So head over to Jim's YouTube channel, or just click on the link to the video in the show notes. I promise you it'll be worth it. It's basically a bonus video episode of Strange New Worlds. And I look forward to having Jim on my podcast to talk about his research Hint, it has something to do with the Voyager opening credits next year. Okay, second item of business. I wrote a feature article on the emergence of life for the Planetary Society's magazine, The Planetary Report. You, of course, have heard me talk about the emergence of life with Elise Cuts on episode 32 of Strange New Worlds, titled Q's Little Pond of Goo. This time, I put my words into writing and published this article for the Planetary Society, the Planetary Society being that wonderful space advocacy nonprofit founded by, among others, Carl Sagan, and whose CEO is currently Bill Nye of Science Guy fame, and whose board includes Star Trek Voyager alumnus Bob Picardo. Bob does the Planetary Post, which is a monthly YouTube series, which should not be confused with the Planetary Report, which is their magazine, although I often confuse the two because the Planetary Report is a physical thing that comes in the post. Anyway, so 
I got to work with the amazing planetary evangelist Emily Lakdawalla for this article, and that was such a joy to do. I've been a longtime fan of the Planetary Society, and this was my first major contribution. To be honest, I'm really proud of this article, so do me a favor and please head over to the link in the show notes and consider joining the Planetary Society to take your place in space. All right, let's talk spacecraft, because who doesn't love spacecraft? For spacecraft, the InSight lander successfully placed its seismometer on Mars. And this is an event that is kind of weirdly personal for me, because when I first arrived at Caltech and got my first tour of JPL, I got to see this skeleton of a robot in a garage somewhere, surrounded by a few engineers who were trying to teach it to successfully pick up a box and put it on the ground. What it was doing was preparing itself, practicing its moves, because one day that robot was going to land on Mars, and it was going to need to pick up a seismometer and place it on the ground. Why does a seismometer need to be on the ground? Well, it's because of what a seismometer does. A seismometer basically feels earthquakes, or in its special unique case, Mars quakes. And through these Mars quakes, we will learn about the interior structure of Mars to a level of detail that we have never been able to do before. So congratulations, InSight. You made it out of that garage, you flew all the way to Mars, and you did what you were supposed to do. Round of applause. I'm so proud of you, buddy. Next spacecraft is OSIRIS-REx, which just made it to its target destination, Asteroid Bennu. Now, OSIRIS-REx is an acronym, which stands for, hilariously, Origins, Spectral Interpretation, Resource Identification, Security, Regolith Explorer. I'll leave it to you to figure out which letters came from which words. But the OSIRIS-REx mission's goal is basically to take a piece of an asteroid and bring it back to Earth. Now, sample return is a really important aspect of planetary exploration. The reason is because we don't have giant starships like the Enterprise with space labs on them, and we don't put pointy-eared scientists, or normal-eared scientists for that matter, into space. So there are limited things that our space probes can do. They carry a few very powerful instruments, but beyond those instruments' capabilities, we really can't get a handle of what is out there unless we bring what's out there back to us, back to our labs on Earth. Sample returns are awesome for science because they can be analyzed by scientists who haven't even been born yet with instruments that won't be invented for another 40 years. For instance, we're still learning new things about the moon rocks that the Apollo astronauts brought back some 50 years ago. So, we're looking forward to getting our first pristine piece of an asteroid to learn about it because 
hey, asteroids are what planets are made of, and they'll teach us about the birth of the solar system. Speaking of the solar system, it recently lost something. That's right, Voyager 2 has left the building. Or rather, the heliosphere, which means it's left the region of space that is protected by the sun's bubble of particles and magnetic fields. Only Voyager 1 has been able to venture this far, and Voyager 2 joins its sister spacecraft in interstellar space. It'll begin to take measurements of a region of space that we have only begun to explore. Now, the Voyager's goals were the planets. They brought instruments along and had a mission lifetime mainly to study the grand tour of the planets in the solar system. So the Voyagers may only have a few years left in them, but they will continue to teach us until their last drop of energy runs out. Or, as Star Trek predicts, they are picked up by some other civilization that reprograms them and sends them back to us. Finally, Astronomers have found a new object in the solar system, which they have nicknamed Far Out, because it is about as far out as Voyager 2 is. Okay, so wait a minute. How can this be a new object in the solar system if Voyager 2 has left the solar system? Well, Voyager 2 has left the solar system as defined by that bubble of particles and magnetic fields that the sun produces. But Voyager 2 has yet to reach the area of space where the sun's gravitational pull gives way. So this object is happily orbiting the sun, albeit outside of the sun's heliosphere. Hope that makes sense. Anyway, we don't know very much about this object as it was just discovered, but it's roughly 500 kilometers in diameter, or the size of England, give or take, or the size of Saturn's moon Enceladus. We also know that it's a bit reddish in color, but we don't know anything about its orbit yet, and scientists are continuing to monitor the outermost regions of our solar system, hoping to characterize this object's orbit better, which will teach us about how those faraway objects were shuffled by gravitational influences from passing stars, from the giant planets in the outer solar system, and perhaps by the famous, hypothesized, but not yet found, Planet Nine. Well, that was a lot, but it's only just barely scratching the surface of all that's happened recently in science. I really encourage you to go out there and subscribe to a reputable newspaper with a dedicated science column and keep yourself up to date, because honestly, I can't do it alone. I love science, especially space, especially planets, and that's the kind of news that is always popping into my feed. But there's so much out there that's happening in material science, physics, chemistry, biology. It's a wonderful universe to explore. Alright, now that I've updated you on some of my favorite happenings very recently in the realm of space, let's open that subspace channel and talk to Elise about the Short Treks episode, Calypso. Hi Elise. 
Hi, Mike. <laughs> it's good again. to see you again. Yeah. Well, a lot has happened since the last time we were on Strange New Worlds together. I am yes. now like a thousand miles or more north. <laughs> yeah, I know. I'm so jealous, actually. Although we did get one good rainstorm down here the other day. So that was like, you know, enough for a little. But I do miss the cold. And I see all your pictures of fall. I'm just like, I wish I had a transporter. <sighs> yeah, yeah. Beam yourself up here. It's uh, it's great. The leaves, well, they, they were really pretty. Now they're all just on the ground no, so <laughs> yeah it, it smells great here um how are things in pasadena um pasadena is starting to believe that it is fall even though it is winter now basically <laughs> and so the temperature has dropped just a little bit i've been able to wear long sleeves which is nice uh, term is almost over which is which is nice and i'm looking forward to winter break so it's all been uh weather-wise really nice and it's nice that the term is almost over it's been quite a quite a sprint (laughs) yeah it is so fast right 10 weeks of really intense coursework Um, and we're gearing up to do astrobio next term too which is which is fun that's Uh, right well i was going to save this for for the end but i guess i can tell you uh, up front is that i am coming back for astrobio for two weeks the first two weeks of february oh so you're gonna do all the fun like big cosmic introduction stuff well, uh, that would be in January. Oh, you're doing Origins of Life. So I'm going to do the, the Origins of Life stuff. That is what you should do. <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, first two weeks of February. And uh, so I'll be back at Caltech and we should definitely record more podcasts in person. Yeah, absolutely. But for now, we are separated and need subspace communications to talk about the latest Short Treks episode, which was called Calypso. So at least I thought I'd just ask you for your um, general thoughts on this episode. First of all, how did you feel when a Star Trek episode ended after about 15 minutes? (laughs) You know, it's sort of a nice, different format. I liked it. It wasn't didn't feel drawn out. It felt like it ended right when it had to. Because in a Star Trek episode, usually you cut between different characters and there's sort of a few different stories going on at once. But this was almost like watching an episode with all of the bits of one character clipped together and not looking at the other stories. So it was different and I thought it was I thought it was nice and it's a pretty awesome way for them to give us content between seasons, which is awesome. Yeah, a little bit sneaky on their part, spacing them out once a month leading up to season two. I think that's just to keep us subscribed to CBS All Access month to month. But uh, but that's yeah. fair. I, I, I'm, I'll, I'll buy into that and I'll, I'll support them. Um, whatever yeah. <laughs> i'll do it yeah all right so so calypso took place at a time period that we've really never seen any other star trek episode a thousand years into the future what did you make of that i am trying to wrap my head around all the ways they could have a time travel plot because it obviously has to tie into the discovery timeline somehow the ship was discovery and the voice of the ai sounded exactly like the voice of the discovery computer system but with emotion so i think that there's got to be some way where they're like oh well we're gonna we have to leave the ship here it has to remain here for us to make it back from some weird time travel thing and it looks like there's a lot of physical phenomena in the season coming up that are sort of like weird science fantasy almost just with the visuals that they're showing and and these red pulses whatever so i'm imagining that this is sort of a teaser to tell us that time 
or bending reality is going to be part of what they do with this, especially since we just got access to like all of space with the spore drive. Perhaps time will get in there as well. Who knows? But I, I thought that was kind of a little teaser. Mm. How, else, how else does it tie in, right? Yeah, yeah, that's that's really good. I'm not sure. Maybe it's a kind of a standalone thing, or maybe it really plays a big role in the story arc for season two. Only only time will tell. If it's standalone, then it means, you know, after all of this stuff happens, Discovery, the ship that we're familiar with, with the level of technology we're familiar with from the century we're familiar with, has to be left in the middle of space and told to sit there for a thousand years. So, I mean, even if it doesn't come up now... It tells us something about Discovery's timeline, I suppose. Unless it's completely non-canonical, which would be really frustrating if they did that to us. Yeah, that would be frustrating. Or if it just takes place in its own bubble universe, of, yeah. you know, as part of the I mean, multiverse. Given, given how Tilly's episode really ties into her plot very, very closely, like how I'm predicting we're going to see her grow through her time on Discovery is to become a competent commander. And they give her a plot line about that after foreshadowing it a lot in season one, it's so hard for me to imagine them. And they're doing a young Saru episode. Like they're giving us stuff that obviously ties into the series. And then we have this thing. So it's not a character that we know, but it's the ship. I think it's got to tie in somehow. And figuring that out is so difficult. <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah. Uh, that's, that's the thing about Star Trek discovery is they keep you guessing. Mm-hmm. My gut feeling is that this has nothing to do with season two. But maybe you're right. Maybe we should maybe we should make a bet on this. <laughs> yeah, um, maybe I'll buy you a bigger tardigrade. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay. Uh, if and if they do, if they do resolve or at least uh, mention in a big way the happenings of this episode a thousand years in the future, uh, and explain it in some way during season two, maybe I'll buy you a starship or something like that. Yeah, no, I'd be satisfied if they just mentioned something about if Stamets is like, hmm, I wonder if I can do time travel with this with the spore drive. I'll be like, hmm, <laughs> so episode. Yeah, yeah. Um, so let's talk about the computer, the AI, who has self-evolved herself into what we see her as a, a sentient, a feeling, and a caring computer being, uh, artificial emotional and intelligent being uh what did you make of that um i mean it's a it's a very tried and true plot device in science fiction is to have wrestle with the idea of what it means to be sentient and feeling through this kind of speculative scenario of a sentient ai the best example that i can think of from popular science fiction beyond star trek is probably hal from 2001 space odyssey and I mean, he's he's less feeling. He doesn't emote as much as this AI does in Calypso. I keep wanting to call the AI Calypso. That's not what she's called. Um, but at the end, you know, as he's being disassembled, he sings himself a lullaby, basically. And, and that sort of tells you that he's sentient, or at least can mimic sentience. Because that's the big question here, right, with, with the Calypso episode, is I almost wonder how sentient the machine was or if it just got so good at mimicking it. But at what point does that become just being sentient it's so hard to to know and we don't have answers to these questions we don't know what intelligence is we can't even decide if animals are intelligent so it's a very attractive plot point for science fiction one thing that i sort of didn't like is this whole idea of you know we see this with every smartphone assistant that comes out and you know every ship computer they're always women 
they're always women and, and they always are there to, you know, dote on, on their users, every needs. And I just can't help but wonder what that episode would have been like if the guy wakes up and the, the AI is a dude, like, it's just, it's just a voice, right? That the AI doesn't have gender. So unless it constructed one for itself from its records and then it chose to be, but it had a female voice to begin with. The ship's computer has a female voice. Um, I, don't, I find the trope of the, you know, servant, like basically the perfect secretary AI woman to be very tired, but I was sort of okay with it with this episode because they were drawing on mythology a little bit, I think with the, with the whole idea of, of Calypso, the sort the enchantress who has, uh, I believe it's Odysseus who, yeah. who washes yep. up on her Island and she ends up, uh, falling in love with him. Uh, so I was sort of okay with it because it seemed like they were trying to do a science fiction retelling of that story in some ways. Right. But Calypso is not nearly as nice as, <laughs> as that AI was. Right, so. right. I would like to think, just to respond, uh, if if the ship, I believe her name was Zora, um, or the name that she granted herself as she became sentient, if she were uh, a male voice instead that the story would have played out essentially the same, maybe she would have chosen a different clip from an ancient movie to show, but I would like to think that it would have played out exactly the same. And yeah, so this mythology uh, aspect is sort of why I think that it's got nothing to do with season two and that it's going to be its own sort of thing because, um, and now I'm blanking on the man's name, what is his name? Craft. Craft. Uh, yeah. So, um, so Craft is sort of like Odysseus in in the Odyssey, and he's journeying away from this war torn place, and he's on his Odyssey home, and he encounters this seductress in a way, but a really benevolent and 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 caring one in in Zora. And then Zora releases him and he's able to go on his own journey. I wonder if we're going to be seeing Kraft again in his own sort of self-contained story arc a thousand years in the future. Yeah. Um, if it was a ship other than Discovery, I would believe it was its own thing. And I would love to see a Star Trek retelling of the entire Odyssey. That would be the coolest thing ever. I would hope they would gender bend and race bend some characters so that we could have you know a little bit more diversity than a bunch of Greek guys running around all over the place. <laughs> <laughs> I think we've already seen that a little bit. Yeah. Um, their willingness to do that. Uh, it, it would be awesome if they took mythology and put it in Star Trek because the Odyssey is a perfect choice for it too because it's this massive epic crossing frontiers, encountering the unknown thing, dealing with powers far beyond human comprehension, which works great for you know multi-dimensional alien races and and solo journeys and through subspace disruptions and storms and nebulas and stuff. I mean, you could do so much with it and it could be so visually cool. I almost wish they just gave us all the short treks just as the Odyssey. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, that would be awesome. I guess that's like the classics nerd coming out a little bit. Um, <laughs> Tilly's episode was great too. It was, it was awesome. And I can't wait to see more of young Saru because I don't really have a lot of attachment to Saru as a character. I want to love him really bad, but it's hard for me because he's he's so not heroic in the way that we're used to dealing with, you know, charismatic leaders in Star Trek. Um, and he's so weird looking. It's hard to relate to him. But I think this is going to give us an insight into, you know, for his species, he really is a maverick sort of a thing. I mean, it's called the brightest star, right? So I'm, I'm really looking forward to more young Saru. Um, yeah. And in that episode, hopefully we get to learn a little bit more about this predator prey relationship on his planet and how a species has evolved 
as a sentient prey species. Because I think, and I'm not an evolutionary biologist, you probably know more about this than me, but uh, that intelligence, at least the form of intelligence and consciousness that we possess, probably has something to do with uh, being at the top of a food chain, needing to plan and strategize with each other to find food, rather than just doing like crazy instinctual dodging maneuvers to evade your predator. Yeah, so that's actually really interesting that you bring that up, because I was actually just reading something about how octopi are just so intelligent. And people are sort of puzzled by this, because a lot of the you know hallmarks of intelligence in mammals are missing, but they're still obviously very, very smart. And they're very squishy, very edible creatures that go through a lot of pains to evade being eaten. And there's this great video of an octopus carrying around coconut shells to put on the sand and go under and hide under. And it carries them with it so that it can use them for later. So prey intelligence is definitely a thing. Also, we're not necessarily at the top of our food chain. We're very squishy and edible to things like lions. But we're, we're I mean, we're omnivores. Now we're at the very top of our food chain. But at the beginning, we're we were using intelligence to hunt and also to make ourselves safer and to engineer our environments. But yeah, when we look at other mammals, at least, it tends to be sort of wolf pack dynamics, cooperation. Whales are really smart, and I wouldn't say you'd consider a baleen whale necessarily a predator. I mean, they're eating tiny, tiny animals, but they're not really having to organize ridiculous hunts. But then you've got orcas, which are super intelligent. Right. Um, and and baleen know, whales do are, that bubble blowing thing too, right? Yeah. yeah so that's well, sort of like a hunting strategy, yeah. even though their prey isn't like But you could imagine intense. coming up with some kind of strategy to, to help you gather plant foods or or insects even if you consider if you wouldn't consider that being some kind of crazy intelligent hunting like a predator behavior. You could have something that eats smaller animals that could potentially be preyed on. I don't I don't know that it's necessarily a predator only thing, but it is sort of, it's different to imagine an intelligence entirely based on engineering safety versus engineering advantage. Like that's, that's sort of a different set of problems to solve. Yeah. So hopefully we'll get some answers for that. Uh, and, in this new short tracks episode that's coming out soon. And, uh, maybe the Kelpians are an example of an octopi type situation <laughs> where they like you know. yeah <laughs> um, i mean they're supposed to be like weird space deer i suppose but the uh, <laughs> yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, hoof through. kick <laughs> yeah. um i'm excited i also am very curious about what their spirituality would look like too for some reason i just keep imagining them as sort of a spiritual people and that could be completely off the base but i imagine if you live in a world where the threat of death is constantly you know showing up and and manifesting itself very presently that people would turn to wanting to believe their their suffering had some kind of meaning and we see some cool images of almost like acolyte style robes in the in the sneak peeks of the episode so i'm I'm kind of curious about that too and like why haven't the kelpians entered space as much as their peer races maybe it has something to do with how they've turned to something other than science for answers i don't know i just something about the imagery of it all sparked that sort of idea in me <laughs> i could be totally off base well we'll see what happens yeah any last thoughts on calypso it was just so beautiful the filming was crazy i straight up got dizzy in the in the beginning when they had the cameras flip over 
it really, really showed how disoriented that guy must have been feeling, which was amazing. That's something they've done so well in Discovery is, is the filming of it. It's just, it's just incredible. Yeah, cinematography has been great. And so has the writing. So I, uh, I don't know if you noticed, but the person who wrote Calypso is one of the main figures in writing the new Jean-Luc Picard series. So this episode kind of gives us a glimpse into his writing style. His name is Michael Chabon, and he's a, he's a Pulitzer Prize-winning author of novels, and now he's turned <laughs> to screenplays. That sounds like the perfect fit for a Picard series. Yeah, I'm going to try to read some of, his, uh, some of his books soon. I don't know. I have a long list of books that I need to read. Calypso, but I think that's fine. That's true, yeah. So, uh, yeah, we didn't really get much science, but it was such a beautiful science fiction story and i, I just okay. hope we see craft again it felt a lot more like an ursula k Le Guin story than it did like a space fantasy opera sort of big lasers guns shooting very like speculative very emotionally driven i thought it was a nice change of pace for star trek i think i'm so glad you brought that up because ursula k Le Guin is like one of my favorite all-time authors oh, yeah. of any genre but definitely science fiction oh if if <laughs> if we could just bring her back to life and have yeah, her write for Star Trek. <laughs> okay, well, um, thanks for joining me on Strange New Worlds again, Elise. And um, it was a pleasure to hear your thoughts on the Short Treks episode Calypso. And we'll do this again, hopefully in person in February, when I come back to help out with the Caltech astrobiology class. Mm-hmm. That'd be awesome. That concludes episode 56 of Strange New Worlds. And that's my last episode of 2018. Wow, a whole year of Strange New Worlds has gone by. My heartfelt thanks to all of you who have joined me on this journey of drawing connections near and far between two things that I love so much science, and Star Trek, and all while trying to learn how to make a podcast. I think I know what I'm doing now. (laughs) Sort of. There's still so much to learn, so much to experiment with, so much to create and explore. Now that I think about it, there are some pretty awesome parallels between podcasting and being a scientist. Sometimes you really have no idea what you're doing. You just try something, fumble around for a bit, and before you know it, you've really hit on something great. And we had some really great moments this year, from me rambling about my thesis defense, to our very first Star Trek alumnus, Brian Brophy, to interviews with scientists at Star Trek conventions, and Trekkies at science conferences. We had a whole host of episodes between me and Elise talking about astrobiology, as I taught the Caltech astrobiology class early in the year. And one of the things that I'm really proud of about Strange New Worlds is that it helps young scientists, early career scientists, practice science communication. But while we had a lot of graduate students and postdocs join the show, we also had a bunch of senior scientists this year, including researchers at several NASA centers and professors at high-powered research institutions. And those are just some of the highlights that come to mind right now. Honestly, every episode is special to me because it gave me an excuse to nerd out about two of my favorite things and share it with you. 
I'll see you in 2019, which is going to be a big year for both science and Star Trek. Happy holidays, everyone. And I'll see you out there. I have this whole closet of Star Trek t-shirts that I never wear now because it's too cold. Like, I would you wear know, it underneath. You know, if you want to wear your Star Trek t-shirts, I'm going to give you a tip for yeah. how to wear t-shirts. Okay. In, in the Pacific Northwest. Thick flannels. If you get thick flannels, you can put them on over a t-shirt and wear them open with, like, a coat on top and mm. still wear your t-shirt. Okay, I need to buy into the flannel I'll buy. Culture. I'll get you one for Christmas. <laughs> <laughs>